According to local legend, this rather tatty old red sofa was the place where the long-forgotten Round the Archives podcast was recorded. As you can see, we've already dug a small trench in the middle and some great finds have started to emerge. Broken headphones, chewed cat toys, difficult nuts. But who were the people that contributed to this show? What exactly was their motivation for doing their strange articles? Time team have been called in to answer these questions and, as always, we've got just two hours to find out. Hello, I'm Andrew. Hello, I'm Lisa. Welcome to episode 59 of... Round the Archives. Rather later than planned, perhaps, but that's mostly due to the real life kicking us in the nadges a few times, <laughs> yes, isn't it? Is it is indeed. Well, lots to do, so let's get on with it. So, here's Martin taking a look at Carl Sagan's... Cosmos. Some of you may know that I've got a few other irons in the podcasting fire these days, and one of those recently involved Andrew and I chatting about science programmes on the telly, and one of the shows we discussed was Carl Sagan's early 1980s 13-part documentary series, Cosmos. Now, despite Andy's enthusiasm for his memories of this seminal work, my own memories of it were fairly hazy with vague memories of a tan suit, a reference to a little blue dot, and a peculiarly addictive pronunciation of murs. Not much of a legacy, eh? And I even got the tan suit wrong. When it comes down to it, there was even a fair old chance that I hadn't actually seen all of it at all, but perhaps I'd only seen clips or read about other people's memories of it. I certainly remember reading articles about Cosmos at the time of broadcast, possibly published in the kind of terribly reverent magazines that I used to read at the time, like Starlog, Omni and Future, which used to take this daft little topic of science fiction and the related real-world stuff associated with it and take it terribly seriously indeed. Mind you, at the time, I may have skipped past those articles and looked for another Tom Baker interview or wanted to read about Alien or The Empire Strikes Back. Anyway, the upshot of my natter with Andrew was that shortly after I edited that programme, a copy of Cosmos popped through my letterbox in the form of a little blue disc or three, and I set about having a watch in the wee small hours and the weekends. And because I was foolish enough to keep on tweeting out my reactions to an uncaring universe, Andrew noticed me doing this, and because I obviously gave the impression of having far too much time on my hands, suggested that I might want to share my reactions and give an overview of the series from the point of view of the artsy-fartsy non-scientist that I obviously am. I might dispute that, actually. I've got a physics A-level, you know. 
granted, it's not a particularly good A-level, and I never did anything with it, because I did sit there in those science labs failing to understand much of what Mr Jeffers was going on about for two years, despite my O-level physics teacher having been rather good at teaching it. But as you know, we namby-pamby art students have a reputation for never paying much attention to the worlds of science as we go about our self-indulgent lives of making our pretty pictures and writing our angry poetry and excreting it out to an uncaring universe. Well, perhaps not all of us. After all, we do at least know that it's an uncaring universe, don't we? So we have to understand something of what makes everything tick. And in the end, if in doubt, it's far easier for everyone to publish the myth. Interestingly, however, I am reminded that Douglas Adams, after having made his own fortune from his career in the arts, became increasingly fascinated with science and scientific research, and spent a lot of his time writing about such matters for the rest of his troublingly truncated life. You could even argue that this particular namby-pamby arts graduate needed to have a pretty strong interest in science to be able to write what he wrote in the first place, but, but let's not dwell. But we should hold that thought, as I'm sure that this particular ape-descended biped is likely to crop up in my thoughts again as we trawl our way through this cosmos thing. Not least because our host, Carl Edward Sagan, also had a troublingly truncated life, and whilst he managed to cram an awful lot into his 62 year span, this may well be another example of an uncaring universe in action. Which is kind of a shame as he was one of the strongest advocates for exploring the universe and finding out as much as we can about it. And the universe answered back, as it will, with a terrifyingly uncaring shrug. Carl Edward Sagan was an American astronomer, planetary scientist, cosmologist, astrophysicist, astrobiologist, author and poet, amongst other things, but is probably mostly remembered these days for his series Cosmos, or rather, Cosmos, A Personal Voyage, which was made in the late 1970s after the launch of the two Voyager spacecraft off on their endless missions to the outer planets and beyond, but before the first successful launch of the Space Shuttle, a series which was originally seen in America in late 1980 and ultimately sold to more than 60 countries worldwide. So, you may well be asking, what did I make of it? especially as a new groundbreaking and epic series about the planets, seems to come along every 20 years or so, and there have been at least two very good ones since Cosmos was made, and these have obviously helped fill in the gaps in our knowledge from 40 years ago, often with more cutting-edge effects and computer graphics than were available back in the early 1980s because it is hard to ignore the fact that things have moved on and that documentaries about outer space have become more sophisticated. But the truth is that the mind and philosophy behind Cosmos remains as sharp and insightful as it ever was. So even if the graphics and certain aspects of the knowledge have moved on, the words that are being spoken and the thoughts that are being shared are, quite frankly, breathtaking. So, let's start, as seems sensible, at the beginning, or in terms of Cosmos, at its own Big Bang, although obviously the series itself doesn't start with a bang, but with a more sedate scene filmed on an astronomical timescale somewhere towards the end of humanity's journey, and less than a blink in time ago. As is perfectly correct in a series like this, the first episode sets out its stall and helps put things in a certain amount of order. You need to explain your structure for any discussion that follows. 
So by the end of episode one, we understand that we are to consider the whole of recorded time as taking place in one calendar year, and how on that time scale, the entire history of humanity, everything that we cherish and consider to be so very important and permanent, is but a sliver of the last few seconds of the last day of that year. And so we are to immediately get a new total perspective on the absolute insignificance of everything we hold dear. Space is big really big, you just won't believe how vastly, hugely, mind-bogglingly big it is. You can certainly tell that Adams and Sagan were reading the same articles in the late 1970s, although I start to imagine that Sagan was writing a lot of the research that Adams was reading, and he in turn was turning it into comedy gold. In the first episode of Cosmos, The Shores of the Cosmic Ocean, we are immediately introduced to Carl Sagan as he meanders across a rocky promontory next to a vast ocean, this, as the credits inform me later, is Monterey Bay, which means that I can bellow, been there, as I'm wont to do, and be rather chuffed that I may have, obliquely, actually walked in the footsteps of Carl Sagan. We are also introduced to the beige, not as I thought, tan, corduroy jacket and roll neck sweater combo. The roll neck comes and goes in a choice of colours, but the jacket remains pretty consistent throughout, even in the heat of the hottest desert, although it is sometimes discreetly removed when it becomes obvious that the heat of the day is too much. This also pleases me as I spent far too many years pootling around in my own beige corduroy jackets, and I'd never made that connection. They suit Carl Sagan far better, of course, but I imagine that his weren't the off-the-peg versions I used to buy. Sagan himself is an affable cove and has a very pleasing, almost avuncular manner of expressing his deep thoughts and putting them across in large, friendly sentences, although his pronunciation of human for human can take some getting used to. He cuts a slight figure, with occasionally wild eyebrows, and a side parting that sometimes switches sides and is subject to the vagaries of the various breezes that he finds himself explaining things in. He also has a very open-minded approach to explaining even those ideas that he knows to have been disproven, but which he knows were believed quite deeply at the time they were being mooted. His scepticism is often displayed with an understanding twinkle, and a friendly maybe, as he understands that what we think we know now, what we are absolutely certain about today, might be subject to the whims and avarices of history in but a few short years. Sagan is perfectly content to propose such disproven theories as part of the story of the journey through the history of human learning and experience, how we got to where we are now, even if at the end he has to point out almost apologetically that those theories were later proved wrong. Context is everything. Knowledge comes from learning and having the understanding that today's certain knowledge can become tomorrow's crackpot nonsense and that even the things we believe in right now might not always be the case. From Monterey Bay we are swiftly transported, as is often the case in these high-budget globe-trotting series, to Egypt, where we find ourselves atop an ancient tower that may, or may not, also once have served as a lighthouse. And this is where, still wearing that jacket in the blistering heat of the desert, Sagan demonstrates one of the first and best of his practical demonstrations of the scientific method in a sequence that is often replayed and might be one of the more familiar bits of cosmos that you might have seen. It involves a piece of cardboard with two obelisks stuck to it and shows by the simple act of demonstrating the shadows they cast that the surface of the earth has to be curved and also tells the story of how the scientists of ancient times not only set about proving it but also how, with a surprising level of accuracy given what they were working with, they calculated the circumference of the globe thousands of years ago. 
Several presenters have demonstrated this remarkable piece of scientific research again over the years, but few have done it better or more straightforwardly. And it's that simple process of showing and telling and proving a point that is one of Sagan's greatest strengths. The structure of each episode is sort of split in two, with a scientific history lesson, sometimes leading into or developing out of the more contemporary science or socio-economic or historical stuff. And so we are transported to a recreation of the Library of Alexandria, which was once the very storehouse of the sum of human knowledge in times we consider less civilised than ours, and which was ransacked to, I think, Sagan's and humanity's eternal regret when the forces of ignorance and darkness destroyed it and plunged us into a period of history we still think of as the Dark Ages. I think that Carl Sagan would have quite happily spent a lifetime or two perusing those long-lost corridors and catacombs if he could have, but alas, it was not to be, and for us, could never have been. He would return to the subject of libraries and works in the sublime episode 11, The Persistence of Memory, which I enjoyed so much that I immediately sat down and watched it all over again. It begins with a love letter to the intelligence of the other creatures that share our planet, most specifically the ocean-going mammals like whales and dolphins, and after reflecting upon how cities have evolved far more quickly than our human brains could handle, takes us to the New York Public Library and an astonishingly erudite summation of the importance of books as storehouses of knowledge and ideas in the history of humanity, a sequence in which you even get to see a very brief glimpse of an extremely early example of an Apple computer interface, a moment that made me smile anyway. This episode ends with a description of the content that was put on the gold LP records that were attached to the Voyager spacecraft and shows us that the scientists of the late 1970s were a progressive bunch, even-handedly showing all of the cultures and creeds of humanity, not just the usual ones, and specifically sending the brainwave patterns of a human woman out into the eternal darkness rather than that of a middle-aged white bloke. If made today, I'm sure that this continual presentation of diverse cultures, open-minded thinking and concerns about the environment would have the usual suspects leaping up and down and complaining about its left-wing liberal, or for want of a better word, woke agenda. Not at all like it was in their idea of the good old days were, when you could be as nasty and rude to as many people as they disliked, who didn't look like them, think like them and share their opinions on who should be doing what to whom, and perhaps they might conveniently forget that some people, and series like this one, were choosing to broadcast these unfashionable points of view back in the very times they still seem to claim were far better. In case you were wondering, they weren't. I mean, damn it, there's even a mixed-race couple in the UFO kidnapping recreation sequence in episode 12 entitled Encyclopedia Galactica. I'm sure that would still get the It's the PC liberal agenda gone mad folk all riled up even now, even if it managed to pass without much comment in 1980. Well, Perhaps affiliates in the Deep South might have raised a few objections, but I'm rather pleased that the sequence plays without needing to draw any further attention to itself. It is, quite simply, what it is, and hurrah to the Cosmos team for that. Mind you, I'm still not sure where the NASA people thought that the alien civilizations were going to get hold of a damn set to play that LP on, but I'm sure those instructions on the tin would explain how to build one, if ever contact actually got made. Because another theme of the series is the search for and the probability of finding life on other worlds and in other star systems. This was a particular interest of Sagan's and he covers it in depth in that episode as well as in others like the programme specifically featuring the planet Mars and our fascination for it and the probability of finding little green men there. The fifth episode, Blues for a Red Planet, takes a specific interest in the planet Mars and is rather wonderful as it doesn't shy away from the absurdities of depictions of life there in science fiction literature and this is actually a very successful episode when it comes to martian themed literature in general 
but it also touches upon some of the scientific misconceptions of the early astronomers before moving on to the Viking missions that actually went to the Red Planet and the possibilities of human beings travelling to and developing what may yet turn out to have to be a place of refuge for humanity. Or not. Meanwhile, even if you were a bit wobbly on your knowledge of mathematics, all of the mathematical calculations about the possibility of life on other planets are covered by using the Drake equation in Encyclopedia Galactica, and whilst you do end up with your own limited importance in the great scheme of things writ tiny, it is fascinating to discover just how much life might be out there, even if the odds of civilization surviving at all and being around at the same time as us seem depressingly small especially when you take into account that all of those signals and light rays that may or may not be coming from these intelligent beings might be from signals sent out thousands of years ago, as we learned in Episode 8, Journeys in Space and Time, which takes your brain, wraps it up inside some fiendishly convoluted quantum mechanics, and bungs it inside the heart of a black hole. We also get to witness Sagan as schoolteacher in Episode 7, The Backbone of Night, a line that is referring to ancient ideas of what the Milky Way was, and whilst there are moments in which I did wonder quite whether he'd actually answered the questions asked by the young children then being educated at his own childhood school in Brooklyn, I began to speculate on whether anyone has ever tracked down these pupils and what became of them after this particular brush with greatness. That, of course, is perhaps work for other people than me to try, but it does show, I suppose, how the questions we ask of the television we watch has changed during the intervening years. The main theme of that edition is the pursuit of knowledge and whether it thrives or not, being dependent upon the whims and avarices of the ruling classes of the time, which does again rather underscore how things have in some ways regressed even in the sliver of history between the making of Cosmos and now, as we struggle through an era of anti-intellectualism and mistrust of experts, where what were once considered to be facts are dismissed and what people simply reckon about stuff is given equal weight in popular media. But libraries, books and the accumulation of knowledge is one of the running themes of the series and, quite frankly, the fear that the forces of ignorance are once again going to fling us into another age of chaos rather than one of reason is constantly bubbling up behind the scenes. Sagan's fear of the possibility of the impending nuclear destruction of mankind is also an ever-present spectre running across the series, most forthrightly in the final episode, Who Speaks for Earth, in which all of the various strands of thinking are drawn together in a kind of plea for the future, and, it seems, despite the passage of 40 years, those threats of human ignorance to destroy reason and science seem just as relevant today, even if the Cold War as it was known then is thankfully a thing that we at least survived and moved on from. Well, sort of. And whilst the recreation of the Library of Alexandria sequence is impressive for its time, often the historical reenactments using actors in costume are perhaps the weakest part of the series, I suppose, although they were very much in the documentary style of the era and such things didn't do any harm in James Burke's connections either, but somehow they do feel like a rare misstep, even if there are a few other ways to successfully illustrate such things. Perhaps it's just that they don't come across as having booked the best actors for these sequences, or perhaps I just don't like those sorts of reenactments in my documentaries, but those are the sequences that I found the most dissatisfying, even if the stories themselves were fascinating. One of the other linking themes of the series is Sagan's spacecraft of the imagination, which he uses to illustrate impossible journeys across the vast oceans of time and space that can only be realised by special effects, as to make these journeys in real time would take far longer than any human lifetime. 
The exterior design of his starship is of a twinkling star floating across the cosmos, and it's loosely modelled on the dandelion seed head, the image of which is a constant throughout the series, both in its CGI starship form, but also whenever the camera brings us back down to the usually beautifully photographed Earth that Sagan was so eager to extol the virtues of. The scenes shot inside the beige-walled spaceship that reminds me of a multiplex cinema are less pleasing, as Sagan himself is often required to act the part of a space pilot or gaze lovingly in profile at some graphic or other, but I suppose that this is exactly the kind of thing needed to engage with the target demographic, and it is certainly the spaceship sequences that I recall getting all of the attention in those magazine articles I mentioned earlier. Meanwhile, across the board, and perhaps disguised by all of this clever sleight of hand, Sagan, it must be said, is less than impressed with modern economic and military thinking, and, sadly, I fear, his thoughts and philosophies would sit far less well with audiences nowadays, at least amongst the loudest of the empty vessels that might wish to shout him down as they pursue their own more selfish agendas. Twas ever thus, I suppose. But one of the things that kept on striking me throughout was the incredible intellect of the man and the power and clarity of his reasoning. And that's what you take away with you. Whether it is to debunk with an air of calm self-assuredness the whole pseudoscience of astrology, as he does in episode 3, Harmony of the Worlds, or when he quite blatantly allows a model of Jupiter to lay an egg to illustrate a particularly fatuous piece of thinking, in episode 4 Heaven and Hell, it's always presented with the voice of reason from someone who knows that what we think we know today may very well be thought ridiculous by future generations, if mankind happens to survive, and simultaneously managing to explain what were then brand new theories like the greenhouse effect and global warming by explaining the terrible results of what happened on our sister planets. And this love of the planet Earth itself and its place in the solar system, galaxy and universe around it is what continually drives this 13-part epic journey. Whether it's through the big science of episodes 9 and 10, the lives of the stars and the edge of forever, episode titles to be conjured with, ideas that we are finally able to be trusted with after the perhaps more parochial philosophies of the earlier chapters like One Voice in the Cosmic Fugue and Traveller's Tales, which perhaps take a more Earth-centric approach to discussing simple affair, I'm kidding, like his astonishingly accessible explanation of evolution and the history of exploration of the Earth and how that human curiosity leads directly to our desire to explore the universe. This is also the episode in which we are witness to some genuine life-changing moments in history as some of the first images from Voyager's encounter with Jupiter are received and Carl Sagan is right there at the heart of that process, if you should ever doubt his credentials. That Incidentally, is also the episode where the postscript added ten years after the original broadcast gives us the now famous notion of the little blue dot. Now, with my cluttered little brain, it's sometimes difficult to absorb all of the information in a 13-hour series during just one sitting. But all credit to Mr Sagan, because a lot more sank in with this series than with some others I could mention. Let's face it, there are hours and hours of some drama series that I've sat through which I couldn't remember and be able to tell you a thing about to differentiate between the individual episodes. The Blu-ray set that I watched, by the way, was the updated version, which means that each disc is introduced by some slightly apologetic-seeming explanations of the restoration work, and even his wife and colleague Andruyan takes a slightly apologetic tone in her introduction. But these, again, only show how much stranger the human experience has since become. 
The episodes also feature extra sequences that Carl Sagan himself recorded ten years later, which act as added updates to the scientific developments from the intervening decade at the end of most episodes, and while certain aspects of the series, like DNA research for example, may have moved on since the time it was made and first broadcast, much of what we get to see is still as solid a grounding in the fundamentals of scientific knowledge as you are ever likely to need. Should you feel you need it at all, that is. As I have already mentioned, the whole series is very modern, very inclusive, and perhaps if it were made today might have those who complain about such things screaming woke all of the time, which probably just shows that Carl Sagan was very far ahead of his time, but also that too few people were listening to what he had to say 40 years ago, which possibly kind of led to exactly the mess some of us feel that we now find ourselves in. In the end, Sagan's personal voyage is one of hope for the future of humanity coupled with the inevitable despair that sometimes walks hand in hand with it, and I do feel that my own life has been slightly enriched by having experienced it this time around, as I hope that yours will be too if you choose to give it a try, because whilst it is interesting, I hope, to be sharing my responses to this series as a relative scientific outsider who doesn't exactly consider himself to be a bit dim, but likes to think that he has an inquiring mind and a general interest in such matters, it is to other minds that series such as this are aimed. And whilst later, perhaps more popular series, appealing pithily to shorter attention spans, have come along to update and replace it in popular science circles, there is still a place in the cosmos for cosmos. And Carl Sagan's legacy, hopes and dreams are very much relevant and worthy of anybody's time and attention in the increasingly busy lives we are living on this tiny blue dot, so full of hope and fury. Many thanks to Martin for yes, that. Yes, thank you, Martin. If you want to hear me talking about Cosmos and science programmes in general, then just wander over to Martin's wonderful podcast, Vision on Sound, where episode 25 will unearth these delights. Okay. And now, here's Warren talking about... Circle of Fear. Last time on Round the Archives, I've made silly noises. <laughs> I resailed the high seas on the RMS Hanover with a swinging single set. And followed investigative reporter Carl Kolshak as he hunted down and dispatched a werewolf on the deck of the said vessel. This time, I unearthed a long-forgotten television show, which, like Kolshak, only ran for one series. In my opinion, this hidden little gem is well overdue for rediscovery, and in my humble little article, I hope it can confide your interest and then perhaps finally it can achieve the recognition it deserves. So let me grasp you warmly by the throat and take you into the world of fear, inspiration, unexpected shocks, and unbridled horror, for this is the Circle of Fear.
literature scene to boast that they have the monopoly on horror during the 1960s and early 70s, channeled through the then waning Hammer Films franchise. This franchise would naturally bleed over into the medium of television and spawn such originally named series as The Hammer House of Horror, and inspire such ITV series as Thriller and Tales of the Unexpected, and perhaps Mystery and Imagination. But to be fair, the last of those was just a restaging of gothic horror stories, rather than a platform for original works. But, in the US, the networks had been well ahead of the game, and had also tapped into the appetite for horror and shock elements that made great entertaining television, such as The Twilight Zone, Outer Limits, Night Gallery, and Cold Shack the Night Stalker. The networks had built up a resource hub of new and established writing talent. Let's face it, the production of a shock or horror-themed programme very lit from the production of a cop or medical procedure drama. Some of these series would stand the test of time and were held up as the bar to which other shows needed to reach. At this time, television had the nation glued to its screens and proved to be a cheap and versatile entertaining tool for the recession-hit years of the 1970s. Networks fought for the high ratings and viewer appreciation to attract that advertiser's dollar. There were many casualties along the way in this war, a war which in several years would land on the shores of the UK. This is the story of one such casualty that fell by the wayside, victim of indecision on its format and bad scheduling. A series that sometimes is forgotten by the wider audience at that time and viewed by critics as just another factory-produced series that didn't make the ratings, and one that appeared destined to sit around on the shelves of posterity, forgotten, unloved and underappreciated. Originally this series had another title, that of Ghost Story, and was fronted by a character named Joey Essex. Look at myself, and I think, brain. Sorry, Winston Essex. I should introduce myself. My name is Essex. Winston Essex. But to continue. Essex was played by English actor Sebastian Cabult, a well-known face to the viewers in America. He would wax lyrical at the beginning of each story, and often as not sit in a lavish library smoking an oddly dark green-looking cigar, whilst warning the viewer about the next horrific instalment. He would also provide the epilogue and sign-out to the closing titles. This was very much rooted in the original Twilight Zone style, and strangely enough, this series often was scheduled to get Rod Serling's series Night Gallery, one of the factors which caused its demise. It was often the introduction by Cabot which would distract or deflect the seriousness of the drama. The unreality of Essex's character would not support, but more of a hindrance. Thankfully, this was an attitude held by the production team, and executives at NBC Television only made 12 episodes entitled Ghost Stories and had the inclusion of Essex's character. NBC needed to refresh the product and retitle the series, so they called it Circle of Fear. A suggestion, strangely enough, that came from series writer Jimmy Kangster. That's right. Jimmy Sangster, that Hammer film stall. He was the head story consultant and writer on the series. He brought his knowledge from the Hammer days to the network and the experience of working on Hammer's only American TV collaboration with 20th Century Television, Journey to the Unknown. This series was created by writing stalwart Richard Matheson. Other writers include Bob Block, the man who penned... and wrote three original series Star Trek episodes. Also another Star Trek freighter, DC Fontana, they who penned... Ready now, Captain, but I don't know whether our circuits can handle this alien contraption. ...were quite busy on the show. Directors came in the shape of such big screen names as Robert Dona, 
and the visiting guest star was quite a broad church of the well-established John Austin, Tyne Daly, Janet Lee and Martin Sheen, to name but a few. This anthology series was broadcast from the 15th of September 1972 until the 30th of March 1973. Its scheduling was all over the shop and often it was put against series such as The Night Gallery, Executive producer William Castle, he of some right howler B-movies of the 1950s, but classic horror chillers of the 1960s, kept a steady hand on the production tiller, alongside series producer Joel Rodson. But the series failed to impress the network, and it was pulled after one series, which in the long run wasn't the best move, as I think the pedigree of what the writers and players were producing was, was really good. And I think that second series would have made it much stronger and thought-provoking. The series visited well-worn format stories involving ghosts, ghouls, cults, vampires, doppelgangers and all sorts of spine-chilling fare, all set in modern-day America. One of my favourite episodes, The Graveyard Shift, starred former head of the Adams family, John Astin, transmitted on the 16th of February 1973. The studio location for the series is credited as being the Burbank Studios. This, in fact, was the back lot of the studio complex of Warner Brothers, which NBC had an agreement to use. And with this in mind, Man Rubin based his story on the back lot of a closed-down studio awaiting demolition. Aston played graveyard shift security guard Fred Colby at the boarded-up studio. Fred's heavily pregnant wife, Linda, is almost ready to give birth. So that night, Fred takes over from his day-turn colleague to be informed that the local gang has been getting into the studio grounds again and causing trouble. Fred reassures his colleague he can handle anything. Fred starts his lonely shift at 11pm and he finishes around 6am, patrolling the empty halls and studios containing long-forgotten memories. Fred's afflicted with a limp, which we find out as a result of an accident whilst he was working in the studio. He'd once been a B-movie actor in horror films, made at that studio and a stunt wrote wrong and he was injured so the owner of the studio has given him a job for life working as a security guard whilst walking around the old props department fred hears voices calling out his name exploring the storeroom he is surrounded by monsters and ghoul costumes that remind him of his previous roles he's played it's dark and the atmosphere is tense and claustrophobic every noise seems to be amplified sounds of screaming come from the rush's auditorium and fred goes to investigate he enters the empty, lit-seated area. A horror film has been projected onto the screen. It shouts out a warning to the projectionist to come out. Fred then enters the projection booth. The film is still projecting onto the screen. There's the sound of a projector whirring away, but no projector. The film stops. And that is the end of Act 1. Fred hands over to the morning relief and tells him there's been trouble with the local gang again. Fred leaves her home confused and exhausted. He goes to bed and is woken up by screaming, to which he bursts into the kitchen to see his wife watching one of his old films on the television. Fred is sweating and confused and appears in shock. That night the local gang do break into the stage while Fred is on duty. His wife foolishly comes to visit him and says she couldn't sleep. There is a crashing sound and Fred tells Linda to stay in his office. She begs him to call the police. Fred locates the gang and starts to chase them around the back lot. Meanwhile, Linda decides to look for Fred. As she approaches the soundstage doors, apparitions start to surround her. They are ghouls, werewolves, mummies and creations of darkness. They tell Linda that Fred is needed and he can't leave here. They advance ever closer. Linda screams and faints.
but the apparitions have gone. When Linda comes to at home, she pleads with Fred not to go back to the studio and to take up the job that her brother offered him selling cars. Fred visits the car lot and is sat in a car when the radio starts calling out to him in the voices of the creatures that terrorised Linda the night before. He flees the car lot. That night he begins his shift as usual and starts his walk around the lot. As he walks around Studio 9, he hears a voice shout, Quiet on set! opens a door to see a translucent film crew and an actor in full horror makeup shooting a scene. The film crew appear to be hovering in mid-air and it's so unreal. They all turn to look at Fred at the same time who demands to know what they want. The figures disappear when there's a car horn sounding at the studio gates. Fred goes to the gates and is greeted by the owner of the studios, Mr Fillmore, played by executive producer William Castle. Fillmore reminisces about the old horror films and tells Fred about an evil character that the studio wanted to film, but his backstory of taking over the bodies of the living was so horrific. Fred realises that the ghosts aren't after him, but they're after the unborn child, as they want to possess the baby's soul. He runs out of the studio and back to his home. Linda is hiding behind the sofa as she is surrounded by creatures of the night, demanding that they pick one of them to take up the soul of her unborn child. Fred kicks open the door and fires his gun at the spectres who vanish. Both Linda and Fred realise that the apparitions need to be destroyed as they will stop at nothing to possess the baby. Well, I don't know how, but all those characters we created in the old days, they've taken on lives of their own and they inhabit that place, the old studio. And they want to live on after it's destroyed. Linda is taken to the hospital as she's about to give birth. Meanwhile, Fred hurries back to the studio. Once back on the studio lot, he is watched by the spirits that call out to him and tell them he must help them as he was once one of them. Fred goes into the old film archives and throws out tins of the original B-movie film negatives. The spirits see he has a can of petrol and advance menacingly towards him. Before they can get to him, he sets light to the film, and the spirits scream and writhe as they are destroyed. Linda gives birth to a healthy baby in the hospital, and the story ends. This story is so well-paced, and doesn't slow, holding the interest of the viewer. The use of the real backlot is an atmospheric bonus and gives credibility to the production. It's a 1970s TV production, so don't expect top-notch costumes and prosthetics from the horror film creatures. But the cast are so good at portraying a sense of fear and isolation when menaced by the creatures. This story stands out as an original concept of fear and possession by creatures created by a world of make-believe. Most of the stories of Ghost Story or Circle of Fear are thought-provoking, but not what viewers today would call horror. There is no gore or buckets of blood, but there is another kind of horror, the psychological kind, and that's the kind that can be the most frightening of all. There is a Blu-ray DVD release only in the UK, entitled Ghost Story. It's priced around £45, a little pricey as it's a newish release, but it's all shot on film, so the Blu-ray enhancement gives it a lovish movie quality to it. 
If you like this genre of television for the 1970s, you'll love all 23 50 minutes episodes. Thank you for that, Warren. Yes, thank you, Warren. Another show I really know very little about. Yes, I've not seen it either. No, always interesting to learn new things. Mm -hmm. Now here's Paul and Toppy taking a look at... Fantasy Island. And welcome around the archives, people. It's me, Paul Shayetti. How are you doing? I've got um, I've, I've got Toppy Smelly with me here. Hi, Toppy. How are you doing? Hi. Good. How are you? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. Now, um, I wanted to talk about a TV show that started in 1977 and ran for seven seasons that I know that uh, you have some history with, uh, Fantasy Island. Yes. Um, I I, uh, I I logged into that right away when it started, mm-hmm. and I I, I, I I lagged off it. Uh, mm-hmm. I did not last all seven seasons with it, no. um, but the beginning of it, I would say the first three years, um, I was I tuned in every week. Yes, no. the the only characters in it that are are sort of or major characters that are that are continual are. Um, Mr. Mr. Rourke, is that how you pronounce it? Uh, Rick, yep. Ricardo Motorban, um, mm-hmm. and and his assistant Tattoo, played by. Mm-hmm, do you know how to pronounce his name? Um, uh, Hervé Villachez. Hervé, Hervé Villachez. Yeah, Hervé Villachez. Uh, although I have learned that he uh, left after season six or something like that, so the last season has a different assistant, but uh, he is the main assistant for. Yeah. Um, we can we can get to that uh, yeah. when we get to that. It's an, <laughs> it's an interesting story. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll leave that for you. The the other thing I want to talk about at the very end um, is, is the fact that there has been a, a film recently, and there is about to be a reboot series. But we'll we'll save that for again. Now I have mainly seen episodes from season one because I'd never seen Fantasy Island, although I, I 
pretty much sure that it was shown in the UK because um, I've talked to people who remember seeing it. But for one reason or another, uh, I, I didn't I didn't get to see it. But so it's been one you know one of those shows I've kind of in the back of my mind I kind of thought well uh, I think I would be quite interested to see it. And unfortunately, over here uh, it's not like a box set of the whole series, but it looks like they released the first series um, or, or maybe even release the second and third but they're, they're not that easy to, to come by but the first season is available to buy digitally so as much as i don't like buying digitally i like to buy uh physical copies i i did um but but unfortunately because the first two episodes were like uh, like like is it was it were they movies of the week or made for tv movies <clears throat> So depending on how they package this, yes, Fantasy Island started out as a series of, I believe, three TV movies of the week before mm. they went to an hour-long weekly show. Yeah. Yeah. It, they, they were basically pitching it to see mm. if this would sell. Um, and I, it may have been two, but I really do think there were three... TV movies mm. uh, of Fantasy Island that started it, and maybe this collection you speak of begins with those television, yes. those movie length episodes. Well, no, actually, no. The, the unfortunately, they don't. The, uh, they, they begin at the start of of the first season proper, although that's a shorter season, only fourteen episodes. But so no, I, I, I it, it would make sense. It would have made sense for them to have put the TV movies on first but possibly the rights issues or something i'm not sure but uh, yeah um, so I, I i i sort of cut came in do you remember what the tv movies you know, I, I suppose we should talk about the premise of the show that it, it's kind of like an anthology show isn't it really uh in that yeah. you've got different characters arriving each week and then it's usually two different characters or two different um, different stories, um, and you kind of go between the two, uh, the, the two st- stories, and, and the, usually there is, the, the, well, there's some usually some peril, but it can it can sort of go from being quite sort of serious to being quite sort of uh, wacky. Um, yeah. I, don't know, I don't know what you you remember of those sort of the sort of plot lines that they covered. Well, typically, a typical episode, the showrunners would put together kind of a a, a lighter episode mm. that had more comedy in it, and and then the other story that would run in the hour would usually be darker or more serious or more more dramatic. Yeah. So they they enjoyed pairing the two, and that's usually how they juggle it. Uh, one story would be kind of just more serious and then the other story would be kind of for comic relief one of the ones that uh, i watched uh was um involved like an escape from devil's island mm-hmm. um and then there was well that's right he was a, a magician he wanted to escape from devil's island um but uh th- then there was a there was another one i watched which was co- sort of it was almost like a slasher movie, and I, I, I guess it, it was a little bit early for the the sort of height of of the slasher movie. But um, yeah, that those sort of like old friends meeting up, uh, uh, and you sort of found out why they'd fallen out and hadn't seen each other for ten years. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
So one thing in our description that's important is uh, the conceit of the show was here's this island. Mr. Rourke mm. is the 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 main man, the guy that runs things, calls the shots, and he is paid a fee that we never really know. I mean, it's implied that this is how he makes his living, mm. that people pay him to create a, uh, a fantasy yeah. of their dreams. And sometimes it's, uh, and that's the, the brilliance of the show and why mm. it was a great anthology is that that dream could have been anything, but yeah. they would, they would arrive via a plane at the beginning of every episode. And of course we uh, are reminded of Hervé Villages famously saying Z-Plane, Z-Plane at the yeah. beginning of every episode. And then the characters would march out and we'd sort of get a, like we'd get a quick view of what to expect. And that was, that was kind of the brilliance of the show mm. in, in that they, they could explore, they, were, they had the opportunity to explore any kind of story. Mm. And they did. Um, now, how well they did it, uh, you know, you could debate. But I would say the first three years, they did it, you know, they did it pretty well. Mm. Now, the show went on, uh, maybe a different story. But that, that, was the, uh, that was the conceit, is that these people would pay to live a fantasy. And there's uh, the big question that you never really caught sight of or understood was how these fantasies were created. Mm. Okay, now some of the stories you could you could see, okay, I see how Rourke did that. You know, I see how he, uh, you know, let's say a character wanted to uh, live uh, a, a, a story where they go back to the 40s and, mm. and meet uh, meet this, you know, long lost love and mm. they want to have that fantasy again and somehow work would create a world where they were in the 40s yeah. and this person would come back but how he did it was never really explained like well okay you're in the everything looks like it's in the 40s how did he do it it's never really explained so yeah there's <laughs> Uh, they didn't get into that. They, it no. just happened, and somehow work was behind it. And sometimes um, there was, you know, quite like they wanted to imagine. I remember seeing there was one in the first season where there was like a a, a marriage that was breaking down, and they sort of went back to like ten years ago when they when it all started and everything was happy, and they went to this party, and all the people at the party were, I think, pretty much the same people who'd been at the party ten years ago. So so. That that presumably that means that they chipped in masses of people to to, to not not just the two uh, main characters but uh, all of the um, uh, all of the people at the party were people they knew so it must have been very yes. expensive for him. <laughs> right, right. I mean, you never really know how he pulls off this. Now, as the seasons progressed, one of the interesting things was that's alluded to, but again, never spelled out directly is that it's some form of magic mm. and that Rourke is somehow empowered to do this through magic. And there's one episode uh, 
that I recall vividly where Rourke, in the course of some story that goes wrong, goes up against the devil himself. Mm. And it shows Rourke as having some possession of the ability to control his environment through magic. And and it's alluded that that's how he creates all of these things. But once again, it's quickly forgotten in subsequent episodes, and they never go there again. And we, I mean, so was it magic? Because everything's very real, down to the last detail. Mm-hmm. How does he do it? I, well, the at least this one story seemed to indicate that it was a form of magic. Yeah, and the um, the film, which we'll come to later, kind of yeah pick, picks up on that, and that's probably where it it it, it goes a bit too much over uh, over the top. But uh, the the other thing, like like a lot of the shows that we've we've just discussed um, uh, from this sort of period, a lot of the the cast are are sort of famous. Yeah. So uh, I think the predecessor we could say to the show, and it was actually done by the very same production company, Aaron Spelling, mm. uh, was Love Boat. And Love Boat was an anthology series where different characters would come on the boat and they'd have a little series. Well, Fantasy Island. Different characters would come to the island to have a little story. Uh, I believe Love Boat came first. Mm-hmm. It was a success. And then they tried out Fantasy Island. Um, and by the way, they, as far as I'm concerned, Aaron Spelling missed a, a, a wonderful opportunity to have the Love Boat uh, go to Fantasy Island. Mm-hmm. I yes. don't know why he never did that because it would have been the greatest crossover ever, ever. Yeah. And it uh, the both shows were under his production. He could have done it. So, and in the first season, you've got names like Carol Lindley, and uh, you've you've got Ed Begley Jr. You've got Christopher George. You've got uh, Vera Miles. Um, you've got. Well, and also probably what people that uh, that I don't recognise, but you would. But uh, uh, Lucy Arnaz is in one. Uh, of course, thinking back to one of our uh, vaguely, <laughs> I love Lucy. Although that, that that's Lucy Arnaz is Lucille Ball's daughter. Desi Arnaz. So he, he took her father's last name. Yeah, yeah. But I also, uh, the, as I say, I was limited a bit to what which episodes I could see, and I th- I thought I hoped that perhaps. There might be some episodes like on on, on YouTube, but uh, there are there are, but not not half as many as I was I was hoping for. Though I did, you know, looking through the episode guide, there's you know there's, there's an episode, at least one episode with Joan Collins, uh, which obviously I'd like to see. Um, mm-hmm. So, like Love Boat, it was a wonderful way to see these, you know, mm-hmm. Hollywood stars. You know, that clearly, you know, we're living in Los Angeles, Hollywood area, and we're available to come in because that's naturally, you know, where they shot. Uh, and it was just it was just easy to get and probably not all that expensive because, you know, how much could Vera Miles or Lucy Arnaz, uh, you know, 
it probably they probably didn't have to pay a hell of a lot. <laughs> No. Uh, and it was within their budget, but the, that was kind of the cool thing, like Love Boat, that you would see all these uh, people, Hollywood people, you know, may, some of them who you know had 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 their heyday twenty years ago in the movies, and so that was that was an appealing factor to Fantasy Island as well, as you'd see these these people you were familiar with. And they also weren't um, against having people back more than once. As I, I note, uh, there's a season um, four episode with Carol Lindley again. So she she comes back for presumably not playing the same character. I would, uh, I, I guess. But um, I also noticed there's an episode with with Don Adams. I um, Maxwell ah. Smart. I wonder. I bet that. I bet that was is worth seeing. But unfortunately, that, that, I'd um, have to guess that that was one of their more comedic you know like yes i also note that and i only know this person um i think she was a model barbie benton uh, she's in a season yeah. one episode but she's also in a season three episode but she's also in a slasher film that i really like called x-ray um i have not heard that name in years barbie <laughs> benton yeah that's see that's the great thing about um you know these anthology shows is people would would come up and you go oh my god it's barbie benton um it's one 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 show i vividly remember and i believe this was maybe in one of their first three movies they had a a bit more of a budget Mm. for one thing to do when they started off uh once they went weekly the budget got lowered but uh, the kinds of stories they could do, uh, when I say dramatic, they could even lend themselves to tragedies. Mm-hmm. And they were very dramatic. I remember one that starred Bill Bixby, who, of Ooh. course, is, is one of my, uh, you know, well, he's just one of my heroes. Yeah. I, just because I, I, I just like him and I have always liked him. But he did a segment and he directed it as well Mm. uh and it was a tragedy i mean it was very moving Mm. the course of his story he he started out wanting one thing and then his fantasy turned into a tragedy and that was not beyond rourke and fantasy island is not all the fantasies came out to be happy and nice Mm. people would come in and say this is what i want and you know rourke would say well this may not come out the way you expect yeah and (laughs) this you know sometimes i mean i remember this one bill bixby story is being like at the end he's Mm. he's sobbing into his hands Mm. at, at at the fantasy he's lived so you're not guaranteed a good time on fantasy island Which is kind of uh, makes me very happy, really, um, <laughs> because it make, it make oh my goodness! I've just noticed that Barbie Benton has been in at least four or five episodes, and Sonny, <laughs> Sonny, Sonny Bono has been in more than oh, of course, Sonny Bono. And, and, um, Carol Lindley, I've seen her again in another season. Um, I was going to talk. I was going to mention an episode I'd seen with. Um, Paul Williams uh, ah. Phantom of the Paradise but I also now see that he, he was in more than one so I now can't remember that's one of the ones I saw on YouTube but I can't remember it, I, I, I didn't realise he'd been in two so um, 
Oh, I think it was it was this one. I, I see he was in another episode, but I see he was one where his fantasy is to live in a harem, and um, that that's that's the one I saw with him in. But I re- I now see he's also been in other ones. But uh, mm-hmm. um, which is why I quite happily, although I found the first season not every. Um, I think also if you watch too many in a row, perhaps part of the third episode, you, you're kind of like maybe one or two episodes in a row is is is, is about enough. Yeah, um, I'm not sure this is a show you'd exactly want to binge watch. Uh, yeah, it wasn't made to be watched mm. that way. But on the other hand, I'd quite happily buy a, a box set if it wasn't ridiculously expensive to to work all the way through uh, them. Um, yeah, I, I you- totally wouldn't mind revisiting it. I have not had that opportunity. Uh, but I, I'd love to see some of those. I see there's one with Sonny Bono who wants to be a pirate in one episode. Uh, anyway, <laughs> um, I mean, just just the people who are in it, and some of the when you look at some of the the plot lines, it just just kind of makes you yeah, in, in, interested, and and also the Evan Spelling connection. You do see people who you know, like yeah. they are either um, like I noticed that. Tanya Roberts, who passed recently, she's in an episode. Of course, she's got connections with him from uh, from Charlie's Angels. But I'm not quite sure. This, this might have been this might have been almost like an audition for her later getting the. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. But uh, we should we should say that Aaron. I like I like to say this. Aaron Spelling <laughs> uh, was a uh, a guy in TV who was king. Mm. Of the 70s, without a doubt, because he produced uh, one hit show after another for his networks, which wasn't always ABC. ABC ran both Love Boat and mm. uh, Fantasy Island. Mm. But uh, Aaron, Aaron Spelling uh, just seemed to have a knack for creating shows that had long lives and were big hits. Uh, and so a big time, uh, like very, like, I mean, he was very wealthy. His, uh, his success made him extremely powerful and wealthy in Hollywood. I see that there's an episode. Actually, this sounds like an interesting, and this might be one of the more weirder episodes. There's an episode season five an anglophile named ralph rogers played by tom smothers wants to meet his legendary hero king arthur who is accidentally transported to fantasy island so that sounds like one of the more sort of yeah um or, or uh, you know some it's not exactly sci-fi but more, more weird ones same episode it's got linda blair um wanting to make a playing a country singer who wants to make one last record for her deceased boyfriend now see what show could you get Linda Blair and Tommy Smothers from the Smothers Brothers? <laughs> you know, yeah, that yeah. that's that was the fun thing about it. It really was. Yeah, as you say, you don't uh, you get a real mix of people in the same show. And, and again, uh, like you said, like uh, uh, King Arthur is, is transported. Like, okay, there was magic involved. Yeah. I mean, we didn't know how this stuff happened, but... It, uh, they didn't explain it, but I mean, it was implied. It was supernatural. I've I've seen the name of. Um, uh, she's gone there. <laughs> oh, and I've seen Paul Williams again for a third time. Ah. But I also saw Michelle Phillips from the Mummers and Puppers. I know she went on to do acting, but I've seen her in a handful of episodes across the seasons. So they're not again by any means sort of. 
you know, wipe the slate clean and then let them come back the next season. They did that on the Avengers. They did that on loads of programs in the uh, sort of yeah. in that sort of time. It's uh, hard to say if if uh, the episode that you know Paul Williams appeared on, like, had a spike in the ratings, and they said, "Well, mm-hmm. let's get this guy back," or if in the course of filming it was a pleasant experience for the directors and producers and they say, okay, you know, he's not difficult. So great. You know, anytime bring him back. It's hard to say which, you know, what was the case. You've got Sid Charisse in one episode. In 1983, it was, it was Sid Charisse at the top of her game. And I think I thought she was a, a name from the sort of classic Hollywood era. Um, yeah. Yeah, but, uh, and most of them probably were tickled pink to be on it. Yeah, and, and they seemed. Oh my goodness, <laughs> there's. Uh, we've been uh, we've been talking about this person on 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 the Shy Life podcast in our music episodes, but there's an episode with um, from 1984 with uh, Engelbert Humperdinck, ah. a 60s singer. Um, he plays. Uh, ironically, he plays a shy singer named Robert Smith, who, which is also the name of the guy from The Cure. But um, I'm sure that's nothing to do with it. But he wants to overcome his stage fright. So, <laughs> um. <laughs> so every once in a great while, Rourke himself would be sort of brought into the story in mm. a, in a way that he wasn't usually. Usually, he's just hosting these people and you will see him mainly at the beginning and then the end. Yeah. And occasionally you'll see a scene where, you know, someone is saying, wow, you know, I had a, you know, it was really great today in my fantasy that the part, you know, cause it goes on, you know, I, I always got the, I always somehow got the impression that your fantasy was like a week, maybe cause it was a weekly show, but I, I'm not sure. But mostly Ricardo Montalban and Tattoo, <laughs> Hervé Villachez were, were at the beginning and end, but occasionally the writers would insert them into the stories. Mm. So, for example, Rourke would be put in usually for more dramatic reasons, and then Hervé Villachez would... He that that was for comic relief. If he was inserted into a story to any degree, it was probably for laughs. Yeah. But most of the time, they were outside of yeah. the stories. Yeah. One of the examples I can think of that they do, which does sort of occur at least in the first season, is that I I don't know somebody wants to go to a casino and spend loads of money and then and then they do really well they do really well they do really well then they lose it and then then um mr rock might turn up and kind of go oh well you know oh dear you've just lost everything uh, and and then perhaps the character who's the main character will kind of say oh is, is, but but can't can't we go back to how it was and go, no i'm sorry this is your this is your fantasy yes. and, and Yes. Oh, well, never mind. Oh, well. Um, Sometimes you didn't get what you wanted. Work work would be like, nope, that's the fantasy you wanted and you got. I didn't chip you. You got got your fantasy. Sorry it didn't turn out great. Yeah, although when they appear so halfway through, it usually is a sign that this is the, the low point and maybe things will... Maybe things will improve for that character by the end of the show, or, <laughs> or they might get something else 
that is equally as good to make up for the fact that yeah. it's not it's not always um, no the real heavy tragedy ones were far and few in between mm-hmm. but they they are some of the more memorable uh, most of the time you know it was you know everything got wrapped up pretty tidy and everybody was was fairly okay <laughs> <laughs> and um yeah so you you were going to mention what happened um later on in the show to well uh, okay tattoo. so Hervé Villages let's just say was a difficult person <laughs> and he had uh we should also say for those who don't know he was a little person mm. um and uh he had uh, his own peculiar health problems but also his own peculiar temperament and what he demanded as what he saw was a co-starring role. Mm. So Ricardo Montalban was the first credit, and Hervé Villachez came later. But he was often in competition to get the same, like he probably wasn't paid as much as Montalban, mm. and he probably was always asking to have commensurate pay. So... So there was that, just a lot of conflict always with producers and his contract and things. And then, uh, perhaps sadly, but he, 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 his, uh, his behavior became more erratic and perhaps it was uh, a problem with drugs and or alcohol. But he just became increasingly difficult to have on the set. And at some point, I believe, he was just plain fired. And that's when they brought in... I don't even remember who it was that uh, they brought in. But I guess, as you said, it was for the last season. I think it was, yeah, I think it was more of a butler character. I did... Um, yeah, I, I don't did, even remember. I don't, yeah, I haven't sort of even seen a picture of him. And by that time, you know, Fantasy Island had pretty much gotten washed out anyways. It was a constant in the, the top 30 and even top 10 when it first started. And it stayed up there. But by the time, you know, after after so many seasons, yeah. it became formulaic. Yeah. And after a while, people just sort of like, okay, I've seen this. <laughs> it um, yeah, lasted for seven seasons, 152 episodes plus the two TV movies. Um, and, and so, you know, you can't really complain about that. Oh, I did just notice, did, you mentioned the episode where Walk faces the devil well the devil yes. was, yeah the devil was played by Roddy McDowell <gasps> uh, oh my god that's right I remember <laughs> that now oh I remember that was a um there were some high stakes I don't mm-hmm. remember the story but Rourke was in uh, there was some high stakes in that episode that's all I'll say Rourke, Rourke came yeah. out on top but but yeah it was Roddy McDowell course now before we just talk briefly before we finish about sort of life after the uh the, ma- the main series I, I just note here that the apparently the butler that came in for the last season was played by christopher hewitt and his character was called lawrence um oh wow i can't even picture him yeah he, 
he pressed an electronic button to ring the bell rather than climb the tower. So ah. I don't know if he was a, a, an, old, a, an older butler, <laughs> a younger man. But ah. um, now, according to... Now, I won't talk much about this one because I don't know a lot about it, but there was a... 1998 revival series but i think Ooh. it only lasted for 13 episodes good um, heavens i have no memory zero memory of that who was yeah. in it uh miss uh mr rourke was played by malcolm mcdowell so not oh my uh, god so a big name um uh and it was directed by barry sonnenfeld who was known for his work on the adams uh, the adams family so um, um, what year was this 1998, apparently. No. A, um, ABC, uh, an ABC show. Uh, well, ABC uh, was the one who aired. Wow, that's no memory. No, don't remember that at all. No, um, I mean, one of the things that I was going to say is that I I wouldn't say that the uh, going back to the original series, um, I wouldn't say that the, the theme was terribly memorable i guess it's kind of sort of desert islandy and um uh, i i was kind of hoping for a title sequence that might change throughout the years but it doesn't it doesn't no. it doesn't change a lot yeah. um, they famously or infamously stayed with the exact same uh intro yeah. through yeah. the through pretty much the entire run with very little changes yeah. and yeah the um the the theme sort of would reflect this island of beauty with mm. waterfalls and on the ocean and bloody dee da 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 da. Oh my god, that was terrible. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Anyways, but the most the, the the thing that's most recent uh, uh, coming back coming into the 21st century and coming to last year is that uh, there was a uh, a fantasy island movie. Now I've actually seen this. Um, oh, you have? Yeah, I've seen it. Yeah, um, it's a lot more sort of horror-y in the, all, all the, the things that, um, and then they and 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 because they don't, I guess because they don't know whether there's going to be any more, they do try and explain, and it is much more to do with magic and all that sort of thing that uh, that um, explains the the actual fantasies, but. Uh, I mean, the trailer looked great. I saw it. I saw the trailer at, um, when I went to see another film very early last year. Whether it actually made it to cinemas because it would have probably been due to come out around sort of um, the time of the start of the pandemic. But um, I saw it because it was available to download, um, uh, and it wasn't that expensive. So I, I wanted to see it. I wanted so to see maybe, after maybe folks can maybe it's rentable out there somewhere yeah i mean i don't think it's considered to be that wonderful uh because it really isn't like the series and that it's far it is aiming to be like a like a sort of a, i guess a horror movie there's no sort of nice nicey nice plot uh, most of the fantasies start off one way and end up going uh, turning dark it's not perfect but you know I really enjoyed it, but you know it's not flawless. Um, yeah. And you know, if I'm going to see that sort of horror film, it was nice that I could see one that was sort of linked to Fantasy Island. Now, I don't know if this is as a result of the film because I don't think the film did terribly well. I get, I mean, they they did sort of set it up that it, 
like it could be a franchise, but perhaps it didn't do well enough for that. But I note that there is going to be a 2021 Fox reboot. Um, it was, but it was only it's only being greenlit as recently as December 2020, and it's slated for a summer 2021 release on Fox. Um, and it's a co-production between Sony Pictures and Fox Entertainment. So who knows whether it'll be successful. But uh. I think there's probably enough nostalgia for that original series. Uh, I'm not surprised it's something that, that they they keep going back to to recreate. It, yeah. I mean, it became somewhat iconic. I mean, everybody for example knew that beginning and when anyone said z plane z plane they everybody <laughs> knew what that yeah. meant and who said that everybody did it was yeah. it was iconic yeah. yeah well i i enjoyed sort of finally getting to see some episodes and i definitely like to see some more but uh. yeah ricardo montalban uh distinguished himself uh, i mean he was he had a long long uh, career in hollywood uh, no, not many people know, but he, he was a phenomenal dancer. He was extremely mm. athletic and very mm. fit. Mm. And he just carried himself. I mean, he was perfect for the roar, the role of uh-huh. Rourke. Mm. And, uh, of course, I don't know. I think it was after Fantasy Island had ended. But uh, he was recruited to appear in Star Trek Two. Mm, yes. The Wrath of Khan to reprise his role from the original series, mm. and uh, you know his his role on Fantasy Island kind of got to be Pat, you know, and I'm sure he was probably, if I had to guess, after seven seasons, <laughs> Ricardo Montalban was probably pretty glad to be done with it. Um, and um, I'm sure with reruns and everything, it may have set him up very well for the rest of his life. But uh, the nice thing for him is that he got a juicy, juicy, juicy role <laughs> in Star Trek Two. that he ate the screen up as a villain. And you could, I mean, he was, you know, uh, I mean, you wouldn't maybe know it from... Fantasy Island, but he was a good actor. Yeah, I mean, I've seen him recently. He's the main. Well, it's difficult with these sorts of shows to say who are the goodies and who are the baddies. But he's one of the main. Let's call him a villain. On the Colbys, which I've been watching. <gasps> oh recently. my god, I forgot. But he also comes into Dynasty as well because of the crossover. So he has mm. quite a, in the around the sort of. Um, mid to, mid to late eighties, he had regular roles on on, on another Aaron Spelling show. So. Aaron Spelling. Yes. Hello, <laughs> this is Aaron Spelling. <laughs> yeah, uh, it was a great show. I recommend yeah. it. If you liked Love Boat, you'll probably like this. Uh, product of its time. Yeah. Remember, this yeah. is the seventies. Yeah. But uh, hey, you know, it wasn't too shabby. Yeah, well, thank you, Toppy, for discussing Fantasy Island with me. Uh, I know we've got some other ideas for shows to talk about, but we'll keep those under our hats for the moment. Very well. Okay, listeners, we'll hand you back to Andrew and Lisa, and, um, yeah, we'll speak to you again soon. Bye-bye for now. Bye.
Many thanks to Paul and Toppy for that. Yes, thank you, boys. Yeah, another series I really didn't watch, to no, be honest. No, I might no. have seen. Like I, I know bit. of it, but yes. but again, that's about it. I know the title sequence. I yeah. think I've only ever seen the title sequence. Okay. I don't think I've ever seen a whole episode because I know you know him going the plane, boss. He doesn't say boss. He does doesn't he? say boss. Yeah, see, uh, it's, that's that's in your head, doesn't it? <laughs> but he says the plane, the plane. Anyway, Paul, of course, can be heard on the Shy Life podcast and Toppy on the Smellcast. Yes. But now, you and I, to round off this issue, we'll take a look at... Time Team. So, Lisa, Time Team. Yes, indeed. We've been excavating a lot of Time Team, we haven't have, we? in a variation of formats, some yes. less successful than others. Well, most of what we've been watching mm-hmm. has been on all four, hasn't yes. it? But you do have some DVDs. And upstairs yes. I've got some old VHS tapes, Okay. would you believe? But we've got nothing, nothing to, to play, play on. on. Yeah. But, Lisa, what is Time Team? Explain the format. Uh, Time Team gives the task of of finding a particular archaeological feature or all sorts of different things in three days. Mm-hmm. So it's it, it, in, a, in a way it's almost like a sort of treasure hunt but it's a treasure hunt that doesn't always succeed. Well I'm glad you mentioned treasure hunt because when Time Team started it's one of those shows that I came to a bit late because mm-hmm. it, it started in January 1994. Yeah. And I remember seeing a couple of trailers for it. And what what I got from the trailer was that it was very much a sort of cheap knockoff of Treasure Hunt mm. and that there'd be some s- sorts in a field uh, digging up th- like little boxes with mm. clues inside. And now having heard Tony Robertson describe what the pilot episode was sort of formatted yeah, it like. It very nearly happened It like very that. nearly was yeah. like that. The yeah. pilot episode doesn't actually exist apart no. from one clip. Yes. Um, the pilot episode took place in, what was it, Dorchester, Dorchester. Oxford. Oxfordshire. Yeah. Although all the equipment was sent to Dorchester in Dorset. Yes. Which caused a few problems. Yes. Yeah. So... It, it as a format, it was sort of bounced around at Channel Four, wasn't mm-hmm. it? That it started off at the light entertainment department yes. and it ends up at the was it continuing education yes, department or which something? Which has got the smallest budget. Which has got no money. Yeah. <laughs> so it would have been better in some ways to be made by light entertainment because light entertainment's always off, always yeah. have the biggest budget. But that would have, I think, very much compromised how yeah. scientifically correct it, it actually would have been. Yeah. Would have been. yeah. And Mid nineties, I mm-hmm. was working in my science lab, mm-hmm. and here's the thing: Time Team was on on a Sunday, mm-hmm. and so the format is like a disparate group of archaeologists are brought together to solve a problem. Basically, yes. people from all sorts of disciplines. Yeah, and our lab was a bit like that. Mm-hmm. 
and Monday morning in the lab, if you if you'd set up a run of equi- of um, experiments to go on, go on over the weekend, mm-hmm. Monday mornings could be either brilliant or absolute hell, depending on whether the equipment had worked or not. Okay. So sometimes I'd go to bed on a Sunday and suffer from like a bit bit of a sleepless night, worrying okay. about what I was going to walk into on Monday morning. Because uh-huh. if it hadn't worked, I'd be basically three days behind before I started. Yeah. Um, so I always find time team very relaxing because <laughs> it, it was like sort of being, you know, w- watching your, your team of sort of scientists yeah. um, actually succeeding. Although they don't mm. always succeed, no. as to be said. No. What we've got on DVD is series 15 and 16. Yes. But most of the early stuff is yeah. on all four. Up to series 11, I think yeah. it is. Yeah. And then there's a gap. Yes. But... The presentation on all four, I have to say, is bloody awful. Yes, I don't know what happened. And also, I'm slightly annoyed now because I found out in the last week that all of Time Team is on YouTube. Yeah. And we could have watched it in the correct... um, Aspect ratio. Aspect ratio, Because the early stuff on all four, at least on our... What are we watching it on? I'm watching it through... Amazon Fire. Yeah, Fire Stick. So, Fire Stick. Yeah. Not Amazon. Uh, kid, yeah, yeah, Amazon Fire Stick. Sorry. It's almost as though t- somebody's taken a 4 3 mm-hmm. picture and then squished it. No, stretched it to 16 <laughs> 9 and then cut the ends off. Yes. Because everybody's caption when they come up is, not, is missing the yeah. last three letters, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. It's also, you can't, because it, it's, it's this horrible thing of streaming now hmm. where you can skip the end credits. Yeah. Which is quite frankly rude, yeah. in my opinion. But it puts it in a box, and then when it's put it in a box, you can't get back to it. No. You can start the program again, or you can go on to the next program, but you can't get back to full screen on that program. But yeah, the the show is presented by Tony Robinson. Yes. And as Tony pointed out, it's it. Almost as though it was trading off in being Baldrick yes. at the time, yeah. though he had presented some documentary yeah, stuff. Because he, he does a history documentary for, because um, he because he wrote books about um, Greek myths mm. and legends and Odysseus and things, and he did I think he did a documentary for the BBC about that. Yeah. So he's done some documentaries by this point. But although the show is produced by Tim Taylor, mm. uh, Mick Aston is is like the archaeological consultant, isn't yes. he, for most yes. of the early stuff. Mm-hmm. Wikipedia reminds me that Francis Pryor sometimes yeah. gets to do the Bronze Age and Iron Age yeah. stuff. Possibly because Mick wasn't allowed. Like, like yeah. Francis, uh, you do that. Yeah. And we've, we've also watched a few things on youtube to do with like q a sessions and 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 lectures and things Mm -hmm. after time team finished which is 2014 the show Mm -hmm. finishes and it's very much clear that like archaeology is a bit of a it's a bit of a circle of people isn't it and everybody sort of knows each other yeah so although julian richards never really worked on time team because he was presenting meet the ancestors which did actually film just up the road from where i used to live and that's how i got to know martin green Mm -hmm. who was was an archaeologist who's done lectures Mm -hmm. and i've been down the pub with and so Mm -hmm. have you yes uh but that's the thing so i know martin and martin knows julian and julian knows Mick and yeah. Mick knows Phil. We should mm. talk about Phil. Yeah, and everybody sort of knows each other. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it's very clear watching Time Team mm-hmm. 
in retrospect how it's very much a show that celebrates people knowing stuff yes and i think that's important to talk about it is yeah even if they don't necessarily have formal qualifications yeah and i think phil is an example of that isn't it the phil phil doesn't have degrees and things like that uh but phil god he he knows his stuff doesn't he yeah yeah but he's learned it while he's been doing it yeah and didn't you point out that one of the diggers oh yeah on one of the shows yeah. displays more knowledge than and i'm, I'm going to refer to the chap as captain inches <laughs> who's yes. this rather posh bloke yes. who refuses to measure stuff in centimeters oh, and, and, yeah. and will only measure stuff in inches yeah. um and he was saying about um they were they were trying coins to, weren't they yeah they were trying to find um a georgian house which yeah. they, they've got the sort of gatehouse bit but the main bit of it had disappeared and they were trying to find it and they find a coin and it's george the second yeah and carenza's carenza lewis who is one of the archaeologists yeah. is not sure but then maybe it's not her era yeah. and captain inches wasn't sure and yeah. bearing in mind he works for english heritage which is sort of dealing with english history yeah and he's like oh what when, when's george the second and the digger just we, we sort of rolls goes, his eyes yeah. and comes out with the dates with the just dates, like that yeah. indeed you, you mentioned carenza we've also got uh people like Stuart ainsworth who's yeah. who's the landscape investigator you've got yeah. john gator and chris gaffney who are ge- doing all the geophysics most of the walking yeah uh walking about st- sticking spikes into the yeah. into the soil yeah. and from my point of view, I I, re- I really like all the geophysics stuff. You know, mm-hmm. being a bit of a science scientist myself, what you can actually tell we even without digging, because mm. it's not all digging in no, archaeology. No. And it, indeed, there are some sites where they're not even allowed to dig, no. or very restricted in yes. in the holes they can make. Um, they're often visiting sort of places owned by posh people as yes. well, aren't they? Yeah, and. What was it you said that sometimes the posh people don't want them to dig holes in their nice lawn? No. And you do wonder why they got invited in the first yes. place. But you said, like, if they came to us and wanted a one-by-one trench, I'd have gone, oh, have a ten-by-ten, ten. get <laughs> on with it, you know. Yeah. I mean, the only time you don't get that is that they go to Cheddar Caves. Yeah. And uh, Lord Bath owned oh, yeah, yeah. Cheddar Caves. And he was very enthusiastic. That's the hairy Lord Bath. The, hairy, the, the previous Lord Bath, yeah. not the present Lord Bath, the... The one with all the wire floats. Um, yes, and he was, oh, yes, yes, yes. You know, Didn't you they draw a picture of him as yes. just like a sort of sort Stone, Stone Age, Age Lord Bath? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's there's the importance of like reconstructions as mm-hmm. well in trying, you know, Eddie Izzard does the joke about, you know, we mm-hmm. found a series of small walls, yeah. which proves they had walls in olden <laughs> days. And um, Al Murray in time gentlemen please there's yeah. a, there's an episode or two where they've got the archaeologist in one of whom mm. is played by paul putner no yes. less yeah. and there's this line about archaeologists with their beards and their brightly colored jumpers yeah. and all, all they ever find is one one shoe and you know <laughs> what what can you find from one shoe julian richards made the point in Mm-mm. the stuff we watched about how sometimes you are wrong yeah. when you find stuff yeah. and you have to say oh yeah that's not what i was expecting yeah, it, it's all very well going in with a theory yeah but you can only confirm that by the stuff you find yes and if you don't find the stuff you're looking for you've yeah. got to adjust your theory yeah. based on what you do find mm-hmm. and you can't you can't make stuff up and just bluster no yeah. uh, it's it's 
you know, there's the truth yes. in front of you. Yeah, because it's always very telling in Time Team that... Because obviously Tony Robinson is representing the audience to yeah. a certain extent. He's always very impatient. Yeah. Oh, oh what are we going to do? Are we going to dig now? Are you we going to what? Are we going to find? We're halfway through Why day two and anything? we haven't found anything. And Mick's like, well, you know, that's because you know, and and so it, Mick, either it's not there or we haven't got that, got down to it. Yeah, you know. or we're in the wrong place. Yeah. And Mick's always Mick's like the voice of reason, isn't he? Yeah. You know, he, he's always very calm because uh, there's nothing you can do. You know, you're digging. You can't it's invent not there. stuff. No. It's not there. But yeah, Mick is, I think, a real showcase for how to communicate with people yes. and to impart knowledge without it being patronising yeah. or confusing. Because mm-hmm. you said to me about we're in sort of an era where it's very much experts are mistrusted, aren't yes. they? If people seem to think that if you know things, there's something wrong with you. Yeah, I so mean, if, even you've encountered that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I have. I'm not, I'm not an expert, but I got quite a good memory, and I remember stuff. You remember dates. I remember yeah. dates, and I remember people's names. And you, I hear people talking sometimes, and what they're talking is complete nonsense. Yeah. But you hesitate from saying something to people because you look like a knoll. Yeah. But why is that a wrong thing? If you've got the knowledge, you should impart it. I mean, I work with somebody who's he knows certain things mm. and he likes to tell people certain things. Unfortunately, he doesn't quite know when to stop telling people <laughs> about those certain things and it confuses them. Yeah. But I think the, the team of Mick and Phil... They work very well. ...work together. very well in yeah. that, that regard. Yeah, you can tell that they're old friends because yeah. they can take the mickey out of each other quite happily. But obviously, I'd identify a lot with Phil yes. just because of his accent. Because yes. I always, I always like the one where he turns up on site and he's got a cold, mm. and they're doing what was it, a medieval leper hospital yes. or something? So they make these sort of medieval concoctions yeah. to give to Phil, and he mm-hmm. has a sort of sip of it, and mm-hmm. he goes, "Ooh, quite sweet." <laughs> and then Tony wants to have a sip of it, and and Phil just goes, "You haven't got a cough." <laughs> <laughs> it's all for him. I mean, we should mention Phil's love of beer as yes. well. That you know, he, he does like a beer. He, he, li- he likes. He drinks wine. He likes an ale. It's always surprising yeah. if he drinks wine. It's like, isn't that a bit posh for Phil? Yeah, I mean, yeah. There's the whole thing about the archaeologists always go down the pub at the end yeah. of the day, mm-hmm. and we should mention Martin, shouldn't we? Yes. That uh, when we were at Gillingham, mm-hmm. uh, so Martin had, had done a Neolithic dig yes yeah. uh, on meet the meet the ancestors well, yeah basically he he's a farmer isn't he yeah he's, he's not, a farmer sure. but he doesn't need to farm he doesn't need to farm because i don't know how that it works now because obviously now we're out of the eu yeah, he was getting it, eu grants yeah, for set aside and things subsidies so that for not farming so he used his time to dig and he found a skeleton didn't he yeah so, well, he found a skeleton of a woman and three children, and, three children, and you can yeah. watch the yeah. edition of Meet the Ancestors for that story. But yeah, Martin comes down to, is it the Gilling- Gillingham History Society, Society or yeah. something? Gives a wonderful lecture, which yeah. I'd already seen about three times before, mm. as we said. <laughs> yeah, I got to know Martin's lecture backwards, but I could virtually present it myself now. But yeah, so there's us in the front row, sort of grinning at him, mm. and the lecture comes to the end and they, mm. they thank him for turning up to their society mm. and all bugger off don't yes. they and, mm. and Martin's looking around going are we not 
are we not going down the pub then? <laughs> and we sort of sidled up to him and said, well, we'll go if you if yeah. you want to. Yeah, clearly they should have invited him, but we yes. ended up down the pub. We did. Yeah. yeah. And you've been down the pub with other scientists. Yes. And you'd never met Martin. No. But you almost felt like you had. Yeah. It's weird, isn't yes. it? Yeah. Yeah. The, he, he was very familiar to you. He I think. was, yes. And could you imagine Martin on Time Team? I think you could. I could, yeah. Because yeah. yeah. it, it, it's, it's weird that he, even the like the semi-regular ones, mm-hmm. uh, uh, they've all got a character, haven't yeah. they? Because you said about the um, Cheddar Caves one. Mm-hmm. And I, I said to you, oh, there's going to be a large bloke on there in a minute who, who's like the... the the Stone Age expert. Yeah, he, he was. He, he's a. He was a sizable chap. He was sizable. And he chap, was pretending yes. to be a horse, he was, wasn't he? And he was bucking. He, he was on the end of a rope. Yes, I was hoping his trousers weren't going to fall down. <laughs> and is it true? I think it is true that Phil almost presents a cartoon version of himself. Yes. That he's got a hat with a feather in, yeah. and he's got an OR accent, yeah. and he likes his beer. Yeah. But that's very much. A good thing for TV, yeah, isn't it? It gives a focus. Yeah, you you yeah. You, get, you get familiar characters yeah. that you you latch on to, and mm-hmm. I think everybody has their favourite on Time yeah. Team. But yeah, the 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 amount of just material that they did, mm-hmm. and the good they did yeah. in, in terms of getting getting this stuff across to the general public, because. Mm-hmm. Um, at school, did you ever go to an archaeological site or not, visit anywhere? Not that I remember. No, because no. I remember it must have been. It's a long time ago now, but we went to Rockbourne Roman Villa, All right. and I've still got the booklet knocking around somewhere. And I remember yeah. it being really, really dull mm. uh, because there was nobody there to explain it mm. to me. That all I saw was some like sort of lumps and bumps in the ground and it didn't mean anything to no. me the point is very much and this, this was always mixed thing about is that it's all to do with people isn't yeah. it it's not just dry old no. stuff in it's, the ground it's the story of the people that put that stuff there mm. and, and i'd like to think that we do that a bit with around the archives yeah. that we present almost the archaeology of television mm-hmm. but all these shows were made by real people yeah and 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 that's the people we you know we should remember. Mm-hmm. And it's a bit frightening to think that you know time team is getting on for it won't be long now before it, before that's like thirty years old. Yeah. yeah. And that that's a frightening thought yeah. that, that soon time team itself becomes part of the archaeology yeah. of television because there was some talk you know how will it be viewed in the future you mm-hmm. know it, as as techniques change. Yes. But do you think there's room for? A return of Time Team? Well, they're, they're doing a, almost a return of Time Team Channel 4 because I think you pointed it out yourself that Hugh Dennis is hosting a programme where they dig up people's back gardens. Yeah. But and it's called Digging Up the Past. Yeah. And but, that is just Time Team by another name. Yeah. I mean, Tim, Tim Taylor's got some stuff on YouTube where they're trying yeah. to do some sort of patron-based stuff. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how successful that's going to be. But it's just interesting that was it spending cuts have been announced recently yeah it's and archaeology's been included in that yeah it seems that um politicians don't look at things that entertain Mm. like the arts yeah or things that um educate yeah like archaeology as very important interesting that 
watching all the all these people doing their Q and A sessions about Time Team, and I, and I said to you, it's you know there are people who would say it's a load of old greens and lefties, isn't mm. it? And it, I think that was very obvious. Yeah. Um, mm. I suspect that people like Mick mm. would not be in favour in certain circles no. for their opinions, for their views. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what what was it? Um, what was that line about? Um, mixed toast of an evening yeah. you know death to our enemies yeah. or something like that and <laughs> i don't think we need spell out who who he considered his enemies yes. to be yes. yeah i but, mean you're saying about going to places when i was at school mm. i was at um senior school in the early to early to mid to late 80s yeah in the era of, Mar- of Margaret Thatcher yeah. where you didn't get school outings no. we had a school minibus that had a hole in the floor that had to be covered by a piece of plywood Yeah, but they still had to use it because they <laughs> couldn't get the money to get a new minibus if you moved the plywood you could see the road underneath it have you ever been to Stonehenge? no, no you've never been to- I remember no. going to Stonehenge um, and sitting in the car park listening to Steptoe and Son on the radio, okay. which, is, which is a weird detail. Yeah. But I think even by then you weren't allowed to touch the no. stones. That's the beauty of Avebury. You can go there yeah. and, and touch the stones and hopefully they don't fall over. Yeah. I like the story that Julian Richard said about it in terms of sort of accessibility, taking a sort of a group of people who were sort of blind or partially sighted to yeah. Avebury and ending up in a ditch with a load of guide dogs, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. And that's just sort of mad stuff that you're just not allowed to do anymore. No. But it's in, it's interesting what you were saying about um, people that are blind, mm. that um, archaeology is very much a tactile thing. Yes. That you're touching something. You might mm-hmm. dig up something that somebody hasn't, you know, might have dropped three thousand yeah. years ago, and you're the first person to, to touch it to, to touch that thing. Yeah. That, that's an astonishing yeah. thought. So, I, I just felt it important to sort of remember Time Team now, yeah. um, and just to go back. And I think we both enjoyed rewatching. We it. we zoomed yeah. through again. It's one of those shows that we've zoomed yeah. through, but equally, we we barely scraped the surface. Oh, gosh, no, because no. we just chose one or two from each. Each series. Each series yeah. that was available. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what, 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 what were some of your favourite ones then? Oh gosh, I don't know because I think we sort of differ in a way of what eras we like to watch. Yeah. Well, when I say eras, I mean the era that they're digging. Yeah. So, because I think you've got quite interested in sort of medieval yeah. and some of the prehistory stuff. Yeah. Where I the the because there's obviously because prehistory is a long time ago. There's not a lot you find. No. I find it more interesting when they look for sort of Tudor and, and, and then the medieval and sort of beyond. I mean, they did one at um, Lincoln's Inn where uh, they were looking for a, a palace that a, the, a bishop had built on that site. But then they go off on the third day and dig Lincoln's Inn Fields yeah. to try and find Saxon. Um, they don't find Saxon, but they do find a post hole from when, after the Great Fire of London, when lots of people were made homeless, where lots of people went to camp on the fields and put tents up. So it's just amazing what you find, even by accident. Well, I, I, sh- I should sort of also point out the the one on Green Island, yes, which is which you know is yeah. literally just Up out the there yeah. <laughs> yeah. in uh, in Paul Harbour. 
um, where they they also rope in one of my old teachers, Jake Keane. Mm-hmm. Uh, although I think on Wikipedia they've they've, they've put his name as Jake Keenan. So, so, I don't know why, because it comes up as a caption on the screen. Yeah, so obviously somebody somebody didn't read it right. No. I did a bit of pottery with him. All right. I've got a pot over there that I made with him. <laughs> okay. Um, and he was also involved with the Ancient Technology Centre at Cranbourne. Okay. Never been there either. No. But I, 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 just, I just remember being excited at seeing my old teacher on the telly. <laughs> and I hadn't seen him on the, on the telly since... Must have been one of the... Uh, London marathons because he used to run the London marathon mm. and as he as he's about nine foot six <laughs> uh, you could always see him towering above everybody else because so uh, occasionally the camera he, the camera would pick him out and mm. oh there's Mr Keane there that's he is. a really tall man yeah <laughs> but yeah so yeah there's time team and yeah. I think I, I want to do some more if we can we, we, we certainly can yeah. and I'm, I'm I mean although the vast majority of it is available on YouTube mm. for the moment uh, I'm certainly thinking about picking some of the later DVDs up yeah. because obviously you get better quality and, and um, an easier way to watch. So, I mean, it, it was just such a huge undertaking, though, to do in three days yeah. a live, essentially a live dig. I mm-hmm. mean, some of the live broadcasts mm-hmm. I very well remember, and they were terribly exciting. Yeah. Just the logistics of doing it mm-hmm. as well. If it would piddle down with, re- with rain yeah. and you'd get, rain in the cameras and you lose and all, a whole all. day half a day of, of digging yeah. and it's just the bravery of mounting that yeah. as well yeah. not just the the archaeology but mm-hmm. in terms of making it as a tv program yeah, it was it was well. you know it is you know i do take me hat off to mm-hmm. them for for doing it and for doing it so well and for so long mm-hmm. so I just, oh, you're yeah. saying about the live ones um because i've looked at tony robertson's autobiography and he tells the tale of when they were doing one of the live ones, and I don't know, I can't remember which one it was, that um, they had a shot at the end of the, the last day, and he wasn't quite sure what was going on. So he's the, the director, because they hadn't had a chance to sort of talk about it. So the director was saying to him, right, he's got his earpiece in, I'll talk you through it, so you can just, I'll tell you what's going to happen, and you can tell the viewers. At which point the technology failed and he had no talkback. <laughs> so he just had to sort of try and um, work his way through it and, and make it up, I think, really. What was so, the way? Yeah. But yeah, thank you, boys and girls of Time Tea. Yeah. You, you, you really sort of br- brightened up my Sunday evenings. Yes. Yeah. Yes, it, it was something I used to watch and it always you look forward to it on a Sunday Yeah. before you're going back to the, the working week the next day. Mm-hmm. So. so there you go. Yeah. Right, and there we go. Mm-hmm. And that's our episode done mm. again. And the next episode is episode 60, yes. which is also frightening. Yes. So once again, thank you for listening. Mm-hmm. Thank you to everyone who helped pull this one together. Yes. And we'll see you again next time. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye. That was episode 59 of Round the Archives. 
starring Lisa Parker, Andrew Trowbridge, Martin Holmes, Warren Cummings, Paul Chandler and Toppy Smelly. On the musical side, you heard Dan Tate and Paul Chandler. The script for Circle of Fear Graveyard Shift was by Man Rubin. And the producer was Joel Rogerson. Hello, I'm Andrew. Hello, I'm Lisa. Welcome to episode 59 of... Round the Archives. Rather later than planned, it must be admitted, but yes. that's due to real life kicking us in the nadgers a few times, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Lots to do, though, so let's get a shift on as... Uh, <laughs> the script for Circle of Fear Graveyard Shift was by Martin Rubin. Man Rubin. <laughs> There we go again. I guess. There's the outtake, anyway. There's got to be a full point when you get it. There's no point in having a lot of head on it and they're making a lot of profit at my expense. But they got to be friendly and they got to be welcoming. And they got to allow me in when I'm dirty, tired, and I want a pint after a day's graft. That's what a pub's there for. What they're not there for is to give me a lot of rules and regulations about what I can and can't do in a public house, provided it is not out of order. If I'm out of order, chuck me out, by all means. But if I've got dirty boots on, that's because I've been busy, I've been working hard. It ain't a crime to, to have dirty boots. It ain't a crime to be wearing a hat. But there's plenty of pubs, no hat, get out. Treat me like a hoodie. Do I look like a hoodie? I am not a hoodie. I'm a self-respecting, hard-working chap who wants a decent point at the end of the day, and that's what I want. Next.